I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. Welcome back, back, back. It's another pop podcast with the liturgy guys, guys, guys. Dennis, I thought you, I thought you join in there. Uh, I don't know that song. <laughs> I just, I just made it up right oh, now. Oh, okay. You don't know the music it. these kids listen to today. Who knows? I know. It was, yeah. a t- it was on TikTok, Chris. You probably never heard of it. What's <laughs> a TikTok? Yeah, it's a, it's a little, it's a small little mint that comes in a plastic. I knew box. you were gonna say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a TikTok. Oh. Chris, hey Chris, yes. Chris, hey, hey, guess what? What? We're supposed to keep talking about the general instruction of the Roman Missal, and I think we were supposed to talk about other ministers. Oh yes, that? from last week, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like acolytes and altar servers, aren't uh, they yeah. the same thing? Okay. And instituted. Right. Blah, blah, blah. All right, that's right. Okay. Yeah, so uh, just like uh, for the football game, the baseball game, you got your lineup. You got to get every uh, uh, every player, every participant uh, ready to go. So before mass, I was supposed still... to be I was supposed to be an usher, but I, they put me on injured reserve. So I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> so we want to uh, have a look at we want who are the people, who's the personnel that need to be ready to go before mass, uh, the ultimate mass uh, begins. So we talked last time about those uh, ordained ministers, bishops, priests, and deacons. We talked about uh, with the germ, the functions of the people of God. And then uh, the third section in the germ is particular ministry. So that's what we're on today. Yes, very particular. So let's just call them the instituted ministries. All right. So there's such a thing as uh, what's called instituted ministries. And these uh, types of ministries, mostly uh, lector and acolyte, but not necessarily. They can be more than that, um, are sort of normative They've existed in the tradition for centuries. They are a permanent ministry, right? They're not just for a certain term. They, uh, I guess over the course of the centuries, it was unclear whether they were part of the clerical state or not. Uh, In uh, 1972, Paul VI, Dennis, wrote a letter called... Ministeria Quatum. Yeah, Uh, that's it. On On the reform, I guess... Of uh, the the instituted ministry, so um, uh, porter and exorcist and lector and acolyte uh, were among those. And le- uh, porter and exorcist, uh, at least in the post conciliar, uh, according to post conciliar books and code and legislation and whatnot, uh, were suppressed. But uh, lector and acolyte remained, and other ones like catechist and things remained too. Uh, I think I think yeah. removing porter opened the door for some other ministries. That's great, Although they do often exist in the Eastern churches, so they're not gone forever. And I imagine they exist also in some of the institutes dedicated to the Oh, ab- yeah, form. absolutely they do. Yeah, so um, yeah, so some of those institutes, the, uh, uh, the fraternity uh, or Institute of Christ the King uh, would, would still, would still uh, go through those. But I mean, we, I think we talked about this on another show. It was a little unclear uh, just what, say, a porter or exorcist did 
And we talked about um, they'd be given a key and they'd open the door and they'd close the door and things like that. Yeah. And, um, they had to um, exercise their ministry, so they'd go over to the sacristy, open the door and close it again. Yeah, but they, they seem to have become a ministry without an actual, you know, function. There was no real connection with anything uh, liturgical. So those were, those are, uh, I guess, suppressed is uh, uh, maybe the right term. Now, and so actually what, uh, what, these also these ministries they they had existed apart from uh, the clerical state or, or or preparation for ordination, um, but they at the same time they really became a part of one's formation for ordination. And so uh, when when Paul the sixth in nineteen seventy two reformed these, uh, and then the the code subsequent to that in nineteen eighty three it said lay men males who possess the age and qualifications may be admitted on a stable basis uh, through a prescribed liturgical right to the ministries of lector and acolyte. And these are the ministries that are mentioned in the germ at number 98 and 99. Now, uh, earlier this year, uh, January 2021, uh, Pope Francis changed this uh, with a letter called Spiritus Domini, and he changed lay men, that is to say males, to lay persons who possess the age and qualifications. And so, now these permanent ministries or instituted ministries are open to uh, to men and women because again, kind of their history is partly associated with preparation for ordination reserved to men, but not exclusively reserved uh, for ordination. Now it's I'm still trying to think about this. I think lector and acolyte had always been on the track for ordination, but there were other permanent ministries that were open. I think to women. So like, so, Chris, does yeah. that does that mean like as you run a diocesan worship office, is that something you have to start thinking about having any? Because normally that would be a part of the seminary process. So, do dioceses need to start building ancillary uh, programs by which persons can be instituted into those ministries? That's a definite maybe. I mean, on the one hand, uh, our our diocese has uh, a formation program for deacons who will be permanent deacons, right? And so they would they would go through admission to candidacy, uh, institution of lector and institution of acolyte. And so we already do that already uh, for them. But uh, beyond that, I think the, the Holy See, for example, is uh, producing the, the prescribed liturgical ritual uh, in Latin, a typical edition, and then that would come to the bishops' conference to translate. And I think the bishops will probably add some uh, additional instructions on that. So I think the answer, Jesse, is in time. Yes, probably that's something that each diocese would be would be thinking about. But in any case, the you know the what's I don't know. I I sort of think uh, uh, unfortunate is that these these are normative ministries on the book from the tradition. Right, but they don't exist anywhere, or they rarely exist anywhere. Is the better way to say it, right? And so, if we want to say, you know, respond to uh, traditiones custodes or what the books actually say, well, this seems to be one of those things that we need to take seriously. That uh, a bishop might may want to consider in some way having instituted ministries uh, in the liturgy because this is what the books ask for. Right. Yeah, the only way you're getting one of those now is if you have, uh, forgive my uh, just uh, candidness, but seminary dropout. Like if you have a seminary dropout then you, <laughs> and, then, and they do that at your parish, 
that's what you have. That's me. I was instituted as an acolyte when I was a Dominican novice and have never used that uh, official title since, I don't think. I think what's uh, what's kind of excellent about these is uh, Institute Acolyte, right? So he is concerned with all things uh, about the Eucharist and at the altar. Instituted Lector is concerned about the Word of God. You know, actually, if we had an instituted porter, we, you could have prophet, priest, and king all sort of covered by this. But uh, that you would have in the church someone whose, in a certain sense, sole task is devotion to the Eucharist or devotion to the Word of God. I think there's great, I don't know, symbolic value. I mean that in the truest sense. This is a this is a, this is a statement by the churches. We think the Word of God and the body of God are so important that we have a ministry that's all they do is devote themselves to excellence in those uh, respective uh, spheres. Now, how are these instituted people different from your brother-in-law who was also a lecturer or an altar Yeah, speaker? yeah. Well, I mean, they're different in a couple of ways. Um, see, and number 98 talks about the instituted, uh, instituted acolyte and number 99 about the instituted lector. And so on the one hand, if you're, if you're uh, uh, not an instituted lector, well, still your job description stems from the instituted lectors, right? So they're the normative one. Another thing that's different is that the instituted ministries are on a stable basis, on a permanent basis, okay? Versus, uh, well, see, after uh, 98 and 99 talk about the instituted ministries of acolyte and lector, number 100 talks about other functions. So in the absence of an instituted acolyte, right? It says there may be deputed lay ministers to serve. So these are called like other functions. You're not a certain minister. You're just carrying out a ministerial function at this point. So if you don't have an instituted actor, uh, excuse me, instituted acolyte, his functions kind of split in two because the instituted acolyte serves the priest and the deacon at the altar, but also may serve as an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. So now what happens, most places don't have instituted acolytes. You have half of his job going to servers, altar servers, and the other half of his job going to a body of people called extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. Right? So that's one of the things that makes it different. But we, we might say too, though, uh, since we brought it up, that um, there is a set of uh, ministries, liturgical ministries. You can read about this in Canon 230, number three. The bit about uh, instituted lecture and acolyte is Canon 230, number one. But in Canon 230, number three, it says, uh, when the need of the church warrants it and ministers are lacking, laypersons can also supply certain of their duties. That is the duties of, uh, of those in holy orders. So to uh, preach, for example, or lead certain liturgical prayers or to confer baptism or to distribute Holy Communion. So what an extraordinary minister does is only functions uh, sort of in case of necessity, but not as a matter of regular course, right? So uh, an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion is doing something that is not in his or her baptismal job description. It's not in my kind of uh, 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 Catholic DNA to be distributing Holy Communion. That's something that is meant to be done by the ordained and not by me. Right, so that changed from years ago, they used to say Eucharistic ministers, and then people have been trying to push back to extraordinary ministers just to make that point, that it's not just another thing you do because you like church and you want to be involved, but it's really, in 
times of true necessity. Yeah. And, you know, the other documents, I'm thinking there's probably Redemptionis Sacramentum on things to be done or avoided in the celebration of the Eucharist. There's also another one called Ecclesiae de Mysterio mm -hmm. uh, on collaboration between the ordained and the lay. It says, you know, the, the overuse or abuse of lay people doing extraordinary ministerial things, it just muddles. It's, it's really an ecclesiological question. It, it disfigures uh, the, the unique dignity and role of the clergy as well yeah. as of the baptized too. Like when you it, and Marguerite go out for drinks and you leave the kids home alone, well... Helen's got to cook dinner for the kids, right? But, you know. She, she would be an extraordinary cook. Yeah. Someone's <laughs> got to change the diapers when you abandon your kids for the day. So there you go. I think this is one of the things, Chris, we talked about way back when COVID started and we started to go to mass again. And they said, you know, no holding hands during the Our Father, no touching during Kiss of Peace, all this stuff. This is one of those things that I think – kind of helps see things a little more clearly that they reduced the number of extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion and liturgies all across the world. So, um, you know, maybe that will retain. I don't know. It's a good question now as uh, I guess uh, uh, we're at a post-pandemic period. Who, maybe the jury's still out on that. I don't know. You know, when, when all these extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion kind of ceased to function, uh, I, I think that pastors uh, ought to, give some real thought. I mean, the church, the magisterium says officially over and again that it's an abuse to indiscriminately multiply these uh, extraordinary ministers. So I think before a pastor were to bring back extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, he really needs to evaluate uh, their necessity. Um, so anyway. What about this, Chris? You have an elector. Is it better to have a lay person lector, say at a Sunday mass, rather than have the deacon read the first reading or second read. Absolutely. The reason is that for me to distribute communion is an extraordinary function. But for me to read the first reading is not an extraordinary function. That's, that's never, I mean, you could have one layman and a hundred clergy at mass. It would still fall to the layman to do the first reading. But if you had uh, one priest and a hundred laity in the church, it's still principally the priest's job to distribute communion, even if there's only one of them. So, so there's a difference. So that's just a fuller sign of the mystical body taking its role. It is. Otherwise, you have hands acting like feet and feet acting like hands, and then the body is disfigured and unhealthy and yeah. ugly. And sometimes you see rest. at a daily mass, maybe they don't have a lector, and the priest reads both readings and. You know, doesn't seem too disfiguring, but that's that's the reverse kind of necessity, huh? Yeah. Well, I'll go back to that principle we talked about in the last podcast that each should do all of, but only those parts that pertain to him or her uh, in the liturgy. And you know, I I think about this in in on occasion I've had to be like an MC for a mass, and uh, I don't know, I, maybe you guys can attest to this or not. I'm a horrible micromanager. And I think, like, if I'm, I'm an MC, I just, my, my opinion is, listen, just let me do it because these little servers are not going to do it right. Rather than me trying to explain it to you and then you messing it up, I'll just do it. But that's, um, that might satisfy my, you know, OCD or whatever it is, but it's not good liturgy or ecclesiology because it's disfiguring the church that we want, you know, this variety of, 
of roles helps the uh, display helps the unity of the one body you know uh, yeah. live so i just happened to open the page and so i sound like i'm joking but i did actually just happen to open the page in the general instruction to number 59 and it says the function of proclaiming the readings is ministerial not presidential the readings therefore should be proclaimed by a lector and the gospel by a deacon or in its absence a priest other than the celebrant so um, I always imagined it was a bit like an extraordinary minister. Well, look at the lay people involved, but it seems to be the other way around, which is it's really not a president, a ministerial, uh, a presidential role. Yeah, interesting. And, you know, this can get confused, and it does today in post-conciliar liturgies, but I don't, I, I don't, I think it'd be wrong to say it was always crystal clear in pre-conciliar liturgies too. We had priests acting like deacons or subdeacons and other things like that. I mean, it, it there's... There's kind of different, there's different challenges, I guess, to both uh, both sets of rites. But this, at least, you know, if we're if we're going for the uh, ultimate in uh, liturgy, this would be one of the things: is that you have a body of ministers who knows exactly what they're supposed to do and precisely what they're not supposed to do, um, because when everybody works accordingly, that's when the whole really starts to take off. Yeah. So we have a few more. Do you want to get to some other ones? The psalmist is one, right? Yeah. So after uh, you know servers and uh, readers and lectors, there's the psalmist. Well, actually, Dennis, here's another one. You you probably don't have an instituted acolyte. You probably don't have an instituted lector. How many places have a, a designated ministry called psalmist? So the psalmist, what does it say? He or she does. Um, Sings the psalm or other canticle between the readings to carry out this function correctly. It is necessary for the psalmist to be accomplished in the art of psalms, singing psalms. And we talked about Ars Celebrandi before. Mm -hmm. This would be what, like an Ars Cantans or something like that. And facility in public speaking and elocution. Mm -hmm. I have the old translation. It says pronunciation and diction, which I guess. Pronunciation. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. We, yeah, we have a, that was a good the, one. That was a the, good one. <laughs> the, the Abbey Church here is a lovely building from the fifties, but it, it absorbs consonants. So whenever you, if you're not careful, you'll just say the word of the Lord, and there's no d, or the, the just all the consonants are missing, and so you have, really have to go Lord, and um, it's an intentional knowledge of how do you actually make yourself understood in a big, a big cavernous room. Yeah, but to think that you know there's a psalmist who's and that role is distinct from being, say, the cantor. Now, those mm -hmm. might be conflated, but in a perfect world, in a perfect liturgy, and this is what we're going for here, again, I, I think it speaks to the importance of, I mean, the, the Psalter and the Book of Psalms is the church's book of songs, her book of hymns. And that uh, one of the ways that she manifests that is that she designates a minister whose sole job is to sing excellently the psalm between the readings and so again, is this I, something mm -hmm. is this something like do you think in the future chris that we'll start to see this renewal in those specific ministries is it something you'd like to see uh you know are these are these typical things that we're living up to or or maybe my other question is we're since we're still kind of figuring all of this out, are, were they kind of like temporary things that were put in there and said, we'll figure it out later? No, no. Uh, I mean, a couple of things, just responding to a few things you said. I mean, it doesn't matter if, right, if I like to see it, this apparently is what the church would like to see. Uh, and so I think, and we're not doing these things now. So I think, um, again, to put this in the context of this season six, if you do really want to respond to Pope Francis's wishes, 
then it's going to be to open up the books, familiarize yourself with them, and answer what they what they call on us to do. And providing a psalmist would be one of those. Now, you know, will this happen? Well, it will for priests and parishes who want to take seriously uh, the implementation of the books of the council and how they're reformed uh, in proper continuity with the tradition. Places that want to do that will do that. But if, uh, you know, kind of minimalism is your game, and I'm not blaming anybody. It's generally my uh, modus operandi. <laughs> but if if you just want to keep on getting by, because that is really working so well for <laughs> most parishes, then we'll just keep on muddling through and... Um, is this psalmist thing new, or did what did it exist before uh, Vatican II? Ah, now there you got me. I don't know. Do you know, Dennis? No, I don't know, but I think a lot of those kinds of things they would have thought of as rediscovery from the uh, early church, right? Because if you went to a low mass, it wouldn't be proclaimed at all. If you went to a high mass, there was there wasn't a responsorial psalm as we think of it now, right? It was the sung psalm and chant by the the scola. What was that called? The tract? Gradual. Was, was it the gradual? The gradual. I forget which is which. So to to try to reclaim this as something sung to the people, I think would have, I, they would have either had historical evidence or have romanticized historical evidence that this was an early church function. All right, let's keep going through the list. So that was 102. 103 talks about the scola as having a ministerial function. Again, it's not calling them ministers, but it's saying they have a ministerial function. And uh, they do two things, Dennis. What's your What's your text say that these things are? It exercises its own liturgical function, number one, which is what? Ensuring the parts are proper to it. Am I looking in the wrong place? Yep. Okay. Yep. Are carried out. So the you parts should go that, back on mute, I think. <laughs> the parts that just, <laughs> now, Well, now that I know what you're talking about here, this is very interesting because most people think the job of the scola is to lead the people in singing a hymn. But this makes it very clear that the scola cantorum, which is a very precise thing that Pius X and others encouraged to be restored, was the, the old priestly chant choir like you might see a monastic choir. They sing things that are proper to them and also foster the active participation of the people through singing. So there is a distinction. Still to this day, there are things a choir may sing that people don't sing. Yeah, yeah, who'd have thought, that was like, uh, that was like a, a grave a sin or scandal that the choir would sing something that the, the people couldn't or wouldn't uh, join along with. But no, I mean, according to the books, it is not only permissive, permitted, but it's it's envisioned that from time to time, the scola would sing something that it would be singing by itself. In fact, even if you just open up the germ to, to say the opening song, there's a manner of how to sing it. Well, all the people can sing it or just the scola can sing it or they can alternate back and forth in singing it. So yeah, the scola can sing parts uh, of its own. And you know, maybe this reminds me of something we could have talked about before is there was, I think after the council, a real uh, leveling um, you know, uh, of sort of the, the mystical body, kind of a flattening out that it was assembly, assembly, assembly. Uh, was kind of the primary symbol and uh, these these other unique functions within the assembly or that served the assembly were kind of looked down upon because they were seen in some way as uh, detracting from uh, the role of the assembly. But this at least wasn't the, don't, what the, the books don't say that. These big orchestral masses from the 18th century, 19th century, you needed a hundred singers in an orchestra and many, many, many hours of rehearsal. The idea was that, that took the singing of the Kyrie off, 
off the lips of the people, right? So that kind of singing was frowned upon, where it was so complicated that the people could were not it's not possible that they could sing it. But that doesn't rule out a beautiful communion meditation in four parts or something at offertory that they might not sing, but would just uh, set well contribute to their dispens- uh, disposition for receiving the Eucharist. All right, uh, let's see. In that same paragraph, they mention the organist as having a ministerial function. Uh, cantor or choir director, get a shout out in number 104. Then number five, it has kind of a list of uh, other liturgical functions yeah. also exercised by. The sacristan. Who knew the sacristan was a liturgical uh, minister? Well, exercise a liturgical function. So I, I suppose oh, it's, a, it's a matter of semantics. So I don't. You know, I don't think they um, the church would call them a minister, but they're they're providing a service, like you you were t- t- saying before, Dennis, yeah. about the term uh, the etymology of the term ministry. Is they they are providing a service. What about this commentator? I never have seen a commentator <laughs> anywhere. It's all commentary. Um, yeah. Well, do you know the the genesis of the commentator? Was that someone back in the low mass days who would explain things here and there? Yeah, I think it. I gather that is where it uh, arose, maybe in the 40s and the 50s, to, to provide some commentary or instruction or catechesis uh, to the people about different elements of the Mass. And it it's hung on. Uh, what does it say here? Uh, the commentator who, if appropriate, provides the faithful briefly with explanations and exhortations so as to direct their attention to the celebration and ensure that they are better disposed for understanding it. The commentator's remarks should be thoroughly prepared and notable for their restraint. In performing this function, the commentator stands in a suitable place within the sight of the faithful, but not at the ambo. End quote. That, that reminds me of uh, when I used to try to stay up late before Christmas so uh, I could see Santa. My brother and I were watching Midnight Mass at Holy Name Cathedral once, and we were doing color commentary and play-by-play with the with the altar servers <laughs> mystery science theater but that's not yeah exactly but that's not what you're talking about right no, i just want to be very no. clear <laughs> no yeah so one wonders how uh necessary well it even says if appropriate how necessary this is um you know imagine i mean just think hypothetically here that if uh the priest reserved all of his speaking in the course of the mass to sacred texts or preaching. And so, you know, out of the mouth of the priest standing in persona Christi Capitis is not simply the words of consecration or the gospel or the greetings, uh, or it is rather simply that. And this other stuff about, you know, buying scrip after mass or uh, remember the pancake supper or uh, introduce, even introducing the mass of the day, you know, in the gospel reading today, we hear about Jesus challenging us to X, Y, and Z. I mean, would that have any possible benefit to the celebration of the mass i mean you know go back to this you know again the the we're responding to traditionis custodes in a certain sense and you know um at one point pope francis says you know if the roman rite is celebrated like it's supposed to be people who enjoy maybe that's not the right word what he says you know the extraordinary form can find all that they want in the extraordinary form in the current celebration well i mean how many extraordinary form or usus antiqui or masses do you go to and the celebrant is saying anything except holy things so i don't know i'm just kind of thinking out loud there. Mm-hmm. yeah it's kind of nice that the commentator can make the announcements you know after communion and then the priest can stay in persona christi so to speak 
All right. There's a couple more in here. Uh, those who take up the collection. Yeah. And those who, in some places, welcome the faithful at the church doors. And again, maybe this is a vestige of the instituted ministry or sub um, suborder of uh, yeah. porter. I don't like know. Like an but. usher at a wedding, groom yeah. or bride, right? And then they see yeah. you. Well, we've probably talked about this before. The door itself is an image of, of Christ. You know, behold, I'm the gate. And so they're kind of doing service to to Christ uh, at the door of his body and welp- welcoming and, and arranging uh, members of the mystical body. So give me some spiritual things here. Mm-hmm. All right. And a few more. Unless yeah. you have anything else to add there, Dennis. Yeah. What if you have uh, four competing permanent deacons and they all want their day? How do yeah, they decide? Wh- uh, well, this is, uh, you know, I was saying before that sort of the, the theology or at least the, the praxis of the permanent diaconate seems a little bit up in the air. So, I mean, if you have four priests, it's imagined, I suppose, that they would can celebrate. But if you have four deacons, are they all supposed to vest? Mm-hmm. And so kind of in liturgical circles is what people debate about. Well, 109 answers that a little bit. It says, uh, if there are several persons who are able to exercise the same ministry, so many parishes have a couple of permanent deacons, um, nothing forbids their distributing among themselves different parts of the same ministry. One deacon could do the sung parts, another serve at the altar, several readings, and they can share that around. So I guess it makes more sense with lectures, right, if you have a first reading and a second reading. Oh, yeah. Introduction of the lectionary for Mass says explicitly, if you have more than one lector and there's more than one readings, have one lector do one reading rather than both. Is that just to keep them happy or it's actually better to have two? Oh, people. it's better. I mean, the, our reaction is right. Oh, this gets more of the laity involved in the church, you know. But we've talked about this before. I mean, offering your whole self as a victim to God the Father is, and then receiving from that sacrifice, that altar, the same sacrifice. I mean, that's that's big time. You know, to, doing one of the readings is 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 not um, not a great step up from that. I, again, I think it's an it's an ecclesiology principle. It's not an active participation uh, motivation. It's because you know, when when you have multiple ministers doing all of but only those parts, then the church herself shines uh, forth in uh, in her glory. Yeah, and it's so. a different it's a, it's a different voice. It's a different expression of the word, right? So it would only make sense that you have a different voice for it, right? Good, I, Chris. I remember you talking about just to put a bow on the deacon multiple deacon thing. But I remember I don't know if it was on this podcast or I was talking to somebody about. It. The avoidance of getting into a place where you have a, a deacon of the Eucharist or a deacon of the the Word, and um, is that something that we're trying to avoid? Because no. if you if that's the place that let's say you have multiple deacons and that's kind of a normal thing that you have on Sundays, and one always does mm-hmm. the gospel and the other always does you know the preparation of the altar, you know, is that should we be avoiding that so that they don't start to slide into like a typical sub region of that that hmm. minister, ministry yeah, you know? i've not thought of it that way and so i don't think i said it on the podcast but maybe there's some wisdom to that um yeah hmm. i have to think more about that but uh yeah sometimes that deacon of the word and deacon of the altar is a common way to speak about it but i don't think jesse that the the documents speak about it that way so for example if you were to look in the ceremonial of bishops uh, it doesn't divide uh, diaconal uh, labors that way. Uh, have to say, you know, sometimes the determining factor is 
how many extra microphones, uh, wireless microphones? You <laughs> have. So one deacon gets the speaking parts, singing parts, and the other one doesn't. But that is so true. Yeah. That's so that's great. Anyway, hey, so before we wrap this up, just know there's one other ministry in here or function, and that's at 106 where it talks about the master of ceremonies, right? So we've laid out a lot of uh, people doing lots of things according to the books. And an MC can go a long way to helping the liturgy be smooth and beautiful rather than chaotic and, and haphazard. So Yeah. The words it uses are decorum, order, and devotion. I think that's good. Decorum means fittingness, right? So, and if it's pious, devotion. What I love about this discussion here, Chris, is being busy at the altar is not the same as the proper use of ministries, right? They were trying to sacramentalize this full vision of the minister of the Holy of Holies that the Vatican II calls the true minister of the Holy of Holies is Christ. And then you have the attendant angels. So, I, you know, I, this is all in my head, but I like to think of servers wearing their white albs as the, the angels, right? They're ministering around the true Holy of Holies in the heavenly garb and everybody takes their place. Imagine if you were going to the throne of the king in a procession and you were trying to welcome them, surrender to them. You'd want everything to be in right order and have it all expressed out in the world and uh that's a whole lot different than i'm bored at mass so let's get interested and, and it's in and it's not even about let's get as many people involved as possible or even let's remove as many people as possible because in some instances we should reduce the quantity of people like extra ministers of holy communion and in some instances we should increase like the psalmist and the other lector uh, to do one of the specific readings. So, to reveal the ontological reality of the liturgy. Ontology, mm -hmm. ontology, ontology. Mm -hmm. All right. Hey, well, you, mentioned, you mentioned albs just a little bit. I think that's the topic of our next uh, podcast is vestments. vestments for all of these people. What are they supposed to wear? So. Awesome. All right. By the way, uh, you guys were talking about instituted uh, lectors and acolytes, and I think my grandma told me I should be instituted once, so maybe I should uh, mm. pursue that. Mm -hmm. huh? Huh? Is that institutionalized? What? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Same Got thing. It. Same All right. thing. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Should we answer a liturgy question? Uh, I don't think. Okay. Mail call. Mail call. Oh, Moses. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right. This week, we have a question from Dave. Dave says, thanks for the work, gentlemen. Welcome, thanks, Dave. 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 <laughs> he says, I've recently moved from another state and noticed that my new parish routinely omits the confidier, skipping directly from the greeting to the Lord have mercy. Is this possibly due to some special COVID allowances to shorten the mass, or am I possibly misunderstanding the times when omitting the penitential act are permissible? Thanks. Dave well, is a good man, giving the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, instead of just griping about the pastor. <laughs> uh I don't know what the what the COVID protocols might be where you are, Dave, but I don't think this would be included in them, and I don't think you're misunderstanding uh, anything. Um, no, the the confidior is uh, is always included unless you have one of these um, elements that take the place of the introductory rite. So, like a procession with candles, or procession with uh, palms, or um, uh, baptism during mass or matrimony at mass the where the introductory rites kind of 
are, are, are shifted and the priest just begins with the opening prayer. But a normal mass always has one form of the penitential act. But it might not be the I confess, right? Because there are different forms of the penitential yeah, act. So so the fir- the, yeah, the first one would be the I confess. Uh, and then the priest says, may almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins. And then there's the uh, Kyrie. The second one, which is uh, not heard, at least by me very much, is the priest says, have mercy on us, O Lord, for we have sinned against you. Show us, O Lord, your mercy and grant us your salvation. And then the priest says, may Almighty God have mercy on us. And then the Kyrie follows. And then the third one is uh, where the Kyrie is integrated with these troparion, I think they're called, or tropes. Uh, Lord Jesus, you came to uh, call sinners, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. But um, what you're describing, I don't think there's any provision for that, uh, COVID or otherwise, in, uh, right. in the books. So, the books. as I hear the question, Chris, and maybe you heard it differently, it's not that they omitted the entire essential right. It's just that they didn't use the confitio or proper, you know, the I confess. So, well, but theoretically, there's no, yeah, there's yeah. no such thing as uh, um, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Christ. That doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's got to be the confidior or that have mercy on us, O Lord, or the conf- the Kyrie with the introductions. Right. So it's possible to be a, have illicit mass without the I confess prayer, but you must have some form of the penitential rite. Is that do I got that right? I think I think so. Yeah. If you choose option B or C, then you won't have the confidior. Yeah, you don't have to have the confidior, but you have to have something. The penitential uh, rite before or with the conf- with the uh, Kyrie. There you go. Okay, Dave, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you. And God, God bless. Bless us all, everyone. Culture and Ex Corde, both at Benedictine College. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by Adoremus, the Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture and Ex Corde, both at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast.